we can't assume that they're going to completely stop China from advancing indigenously in artificial intelligence or in chips or anything like that. But what we can do is impose that strategic delay, make it harder for them to get to those. I think, what was it you said, you know, steps starting at step three, maybe getting up to step five. Whatever you can do to make that harder, I think, is, is the way to think about export controls. Export controls, do they work? And would they work for AI? To discuss, we have on today Emily Weinstein and Tim Huang, both research fellows at CSET. We'll be talking today about the space industry, the AI export controls, and stay tuned at the end of the show where we even get into management questions around bowling alleys and churches. I will leave no more context. Um, Tim and Emily, welcome to China Talk. Uh, I think we got to start with hot takes on uh, what the Commerce Department did um, with respect to semiconductor uh, manufacturing equipment and um, AI chips. Uh, Emily and Tim, what are your thoughts? Um, all I'll say is that uh, we are witnessing a very monumental shift in how we in the United States use export controls and view export controls as a policy tool. Um, I think it's probably too soon to tell what effect these will have, if it was a good policy or a bad policy. I, I, I Jury's out on that so far, but... Um, mm-hmm. I think we will be the next the next six months next year will be super interesting to watch. Yeah, and I think my view is I, I think in some ways these moves bring into stark relief. You know, I think one of the things that uh, was a big theme in the paper that Emily and I wrote on export controls, uh, which is what is the objective we're trying to achieve when we implement these types of policies? Um, you know, I think Emily and I would argue that if the goal here is really to you know preserve American superiority in semiconductors. Um, th- this may not be the best strategy to, to pursue. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that the debate here and, and part of the problem often is that the, the clarity of what we're trying to achieve with some of these policies is not always very clear. Um, and, you know, I think ultimately that, that raises concerns about the efficacy potentially of using some of these tools. And I just add, so if the objective here, which guessing, because again, you know, in the Federal Register, they'll put in a few different things. They talked about WMDs. They talked about human rights abuses. Um, uh, revolving around uh, chips and, and the AI industry in China. If the idea was to stop China at a specific threshold for their chip production and AI development, then maybe if that was the objective, then maybe this was a good policy. But again, jury's out. Still very new. Yeah. So, yeah, let's talk a little bit about how hard it is to sort of predict the second order consequences of these sorts of decisions, which I think is a nice little transition into the extended case study that you both wrote up looking at um, the space industry. So first off, why don't you guys pick this industry to zero in on? Yeah, absolutely. So there's two things uh, I think to to talk about here. I, I think one of them is that space in some ways ends up being a really fascinating and I think personally like a very important case study in thinking about the long-term consequences of decoupling to wit export controls. Uh, The reason being is basically that it represents an industry that is both uh, uh, an emerging technology in some ways, right, cutting-edge tech, high-end tech, um, that for a period of time really featured very strong and robust trade relations and trade connections uh, between the U.S. and China. Uh, And so I think we're interested in trying to figure out what the long-term consequences of severing those links might look like. Um, space is a really good example because it has already happened there before. Um, and I think it is really helpful in the very least because we can, I think, debate, debate the applicability of it or not. Um, but I think in some ways it parallels so closely some of the debates that we're having, say, around AI today. 
Now, you know, part of the sort of trick of the paper was to say, okay, we've got this historical case study. We can apply it to all these other emerging technologies, AI, synthetic bio, so on and so forth. Um, and we ended up kind of narrowing to AI just because I think there's just so much there in terms of being able to compare just sort of these two case studies rather than kind of sort of diffusing the message across lots of different technologies. Um, but I think the general framework and I think the lessons that we learned from the space example you know, are, are ultimately broadly applicable, right? And I think is something that we should be keeping in mind, especially as we kind of like leap into this era of, of using export controls in this particular way. Sure. So yeah, let's bring it back to the 1980s. I was reading, rereading a Xi biography last night, and apparently one of the, the reasons he came to the US for the first time in the early 80s was as a part of like a military cooperation delegation where they were talking about missiles and space stuff. But yeah, let's take the timeline forward to 1998, Laurel and Hughes. Yeah, so uh, ju just to go back quickly to your, your Xi Jinping example, I mean, as soon as, uh, as soon as China and the U.S. actually normalized relations in 79, space cooperation was actually at the forefront of everyone's mind. Everyone knows the really famous picture of, of Deng Xiaoping at the, at the rodeo in Texas that happened in January of 79. Um, that actually was part of a big trip that Deng Xiaoping did uh, where he visited NASA's Johnson Space Center in Texas. So this happened like January 31st of 1979. So pretty soon after we normalized relations. So that clearly it was it was a really um, important thing in, in the bilateral relationship. And it kind of remained on that trajectory from 79 through like the mid 1990s, even despite uh, the uh, Tiananmen massacre happened, obviously, in Ju uh, June of 1989. Um, and we saw the U.S. actually open up new sanctions, new controls on China um, uh, as a part of that. But space collaborations tended to stay pretty. Um, they, they tended to continue, I would say, on the same trajectory. We actually even in the paper mention that from 89 to 1998, Presidents Bush and Clinton actually issued 13 presidential waivers for 20 satellite projects based on, I'm, I'm using air quotes here that no one can see, but based on this idea of national interest. So regardless of whatever the policy was related to China and military technology or, or more broadly, um, space was still considered a really important part. So the big turning point, as you mentioned, Jordan, is this, this Laurel Hughes case um, that actually started, um, so... Uh, during this time, a lot of what was happening was U.S. satellites were being built uh, in the U.S. and then sent over to China to be launched. And what happened, I think around 96, 97, there was an incident involving uh, a launch of uh, some satellites uh, from Hughes Electronics Corporation and Laurel Space and Communication, these two U.S. companies. And so an insurance company went over there to do just a, a normal like insurance investigation to see what happened. And eventually this turned into what became the DOJ um, investigation into a potential technology transfer um, that might have happened. So the investigation was initiated again after these after these several launch failures. And what was being kind of discussed was this idea of whether or not Laurel and Hughes had actually shared information with uh, Chinese engineers and scientists that allegedly improved the accuracy and reliability of Chinese missiles. Okay, so the DOJ gets freaked out. There's, you know, gambling going on in this house. Um, what is what ends up being the political response from Washington? So the political response uh, ended up being the creation of a committee that has probably one of the longer names that I've seen in Washington. It was the House Select Committee on U.S. National Security and Military Slash Commercial Concerns with the People's Republic of China. 
So this was this long committee in Congress, also known as the Cox Commission, named after the uh, congressman who was leading that effort. So the resulting investigation, so, so this committee was set up, um, investigations were launched, more, you know, folks in Congress and, and other parts of the interagency started talking or started you know, looking into this. And the resulting investigation was this giant report called the Cox Report that you can actually, if you're a nerd like me, you can go out and purchase a hard copy of it. They still exist. Or you can read. There's about it's about a thousand pages <laughs> online if you really want to. Um, but it was probably one of the most, well, at this time, probably the most comprehensive uh, look into uh, the issue of tech transfer um, in the context of, of China. Um, I think people had always hinted at this, um, but this was the first I would say U.S. government issued publicly issued document that really dove into like very specific niche case studies of incidents of technology transfer. And obviously the Laurel Hughes incident was a was a big piece of this. I think there's an entire chapter just specifically on what happened in that case. So if so, if you're yeah. out there and you wrote this Cox report, reach out. We're going to bring you on China Talk. Emily's going to drill you on, um, uh, you know, the deep details of uh, of 1990s tech transfer cases. No, I would love that. Um, and, and so, I mean, what, what happened from this and there, there were a bunch of things that happened as a result of the Cox report. But the one that's most relevant to the to the case study that Tim and I looked at um, was this one specific directive that came out of the 1999 National Defense Authorization Act that directed that all satellites and related items that are on the commerce control list of dual use items. And we can talk a little bit about some of the nitty gritty and the export controls too. So all the satellites and related items that were previously designated as dual use items and controlled other, under commerce were then transferred to uh, the United States munitions list, uh, which is housed at the State Department and is is ITAR, um, the International uh, Traffic and Arms Regulations. So pretty much ostensibly what the state had played English was made uh, commercial satellites and their related components uh, it officially made them uh, legally defined as defense articles. And uh, for those who don't know, things that are controlled under ITAR versus under the Export Administration regulations, are the, the controls are, are, are much stricter. So anything that is under ITAR is like a very traditional kind of munition, you know, any, any weapons, uh, missiles, any of that kind of thing. Those types of exports are governed in a much stricter fashion. Tim, what happens next? Well, effectively, you know, uh, trade stops. I think that's one of the most interesting aspects of this is that as a case study, it's this great example of, okay, you implement the policy, uh, previously robust trade links are are severed, uh, and then we get to see the kind of long-term effect of what kinds of uh, of, uh, long-term effect of these types of policies. Um, And I think there's two things that really kind of come out of this sort of result, right, Out out of the kind of Laurel and Hughes case. You know, the first one is basically that for a period of time, um, yeah, it actually turns out that export controls really do delay, right, China in, in progress around the technology. Uh, but I think contrary to maybe some of the hopes of people who did implement these policies, any hopes that you'd be able to sort of deny China access to advanced satellite technologies over the long run um, ends up being a pipe dream, right? Like China basically catches up and, you know, some people argue for you that they've they kind of exceeded um, where we are at the moment. Um, and so I think that's the sort of first lesson that we draw from this is that, you know, I think it's very difficult to believe that export controls can kind of create sort of like enduring, um, you know, uh, an enduring barrier basically to a kind of peer adversary and getting access to to an emerging or advanced technology. 
the second one that's really interesting is that um, pretty quickly uh, the supply chains start adjusting around these policies. And so what previously was sort of U.S. corporate leadership, private leadership in this technology becomes a world where actually the supply chain and expertise around this tech becomes far more distributed. Um, and that there are a lot of satellite companies in Europe basically saying, okay, well, if the Americans don't want this business, we're happy to supply it, right? Um, and that causes the eff efficacy of these sort of trade blockages, these trade policies, uh, to, to, to erode over time, to deteriorate over time. Um, and, you know, I think that brings us to, I think, a second lesson that Emily draw, and I draw from the case study, uh, which is basically that the distribution of the supply chain, the concentration of the supply chain is really important for trying to figure out how effective one of these policies is going to be. And the intuition behind this is not that complicated, right? If uh, an entire industry exists within your borders, it's a lot easier to control uh, than if it's really spread out globally. Um, and so the other thing that we say is, look, you know, we always reach towards expert control because it feels like a really cool thing to do, I think, in some ways. Um, but I think, you know, ultimately, I think what we're saying is that, you know, the efficacy of these policies will vary quite wildly, kind of depending on the state of play uh, on a technology by technology basis. Um, and I think that's another thing that we kind of learn out of it. And, you know, the end result is ultimately that, you know, U.S. competitiveness in this tech has kind of uh, declined quite a bit. And, and I think one thing that we take from the study is that this is one of the consequences that we need to take into account. And I guess weigh it against the, the benefit that we think we can, we can gain here, which is the sort of temporary delay that we think we can impose. I want to double down on, on the unilateral piece of this, because I think that's also a really important part uh, both of this specific case study, as well as kind of the conversations around the more recent controls, um, to the move to uh, move them to um, uh, be considered munitions versus dual use items was a unilateral move. So the U.S. just decided this was too urgent. We had to do this now. You know, whatever allies and partners can come on board or not, not totally sure exactly what the conversations were there. Um, but so this unilateral policy led to this fact of um, or led to this creation of of things like ITAR-free satellites, which is just this idea of of um, satellites that have that have manufactured out or developed out all U.S. components. Because if you if you're sitting in Europe and you're like, hey, I want to make a lot of money on on satellites, uh, I want to sell a lot. If I use U.S. components, it's going to take a hell of a lot longer to get these uh, you know approved or get licenses to export these because they have those very strictly controlled U.S. components in them. Um, I mean, that that's just that's it's it's a pain in the ass. So, you know what? What I'm going to do is start to develop ITAR free satellites and sell them. And therefore, we no longer have to rely on the United States. Um, and there's actually a really good I want to I want to give a shout out to an author who I've never actually met. But his book is is my favorite book related to export controls. His name is Hugo Meyer. Um, he's a professor in Europe. I think he's at the University of Oxford. He wrote the most wonderful book on this topic, particularly um, U.S. export control policy towards China. Um, it's called Trading with the Enemy. Uh, make sure you type in Hugo Meyer's name because otherwise you get all the, the um, World War II Nazi era policies about trading with the enemy. So Claire, it's, make sure you put Hugo Meyer in there. Um, for those who are from Michigan, Meyer is spelled like the uh, chain of stores in Michigan. Uh, fun little thing that only Michigan people will understand. Meyer is spelled M-E-I-J-E-R. Um, yes, fantastic book. Yes, everyone should read it. Um, but there's a really, really helpful uh, pie chart that I, I have screenshot, screenshotted from his book that I'm actually looking at right now that shows the U.S. dominance in space actually eroding. So we have these two <laughs> pie charts sitting next to each other. 
one from 1995, one from 2005. And if you think of the middle being 1999, uh, 2000, when that NDAA uh, rule came out. So this is shows the worldwide share of satellite exports. Um, and on one side, we see that the U.S. occupies 73 percent of the worldwide share of satellite exports before this policy. So this is, again, mid-1990s. Um, and if you look actually the then the, the same pie chart uh, in 2005, we see that the U.S. actually now or at that point in time only then occupied 25 percent of the total share of satellite exports worldwide. And one of the things that I know I'm painting a kind of visual picture for a, for a, a, an audience that's listening to this, but there's also an increase in the number of players that are actually involved in the market. Um, so in 1995, it was really the pie chart shows U.S., U.K., and Russia. In 2005, I see U.S., U.K., Russia, France, EU, Italy, Germany. And I want to say, so I've got a great question before why EU comes up in France and Italy and Germany come up separately. It's because the European Space Agency, so the EU's level of, you know, space, space company, um, they actually started, they were also involved in the creation of ITAR-free satellites as well. Um, so French French companies were doing this, um, but also it, things were happening at the EU level. So that's that's just one clarifying point. Um, right. But so like Tim said here, like you really see uh, a decline in U.S. competitiveness um, just over that 10 year period because of this one policy. Yeah. So alongside the Cox report uh, authors, um, this guy, Meyer, international man of mystery, born in Italy, is French and Dutch. Beyond his research, his passions include visual arts, jazz, cosmology, swing dancing, traveling, and Paris. He loves learning languages and is currently studying classical Arabic. Hugo Meyer, you are you are my hero. He writes amazing books. This is before his before I found his book. Most of the most of the writing on export controls was very legal. Obviously, it's a, it's, a, it's a legal subject. Um, his book was the first one that you could actually read in like an academic perspective and like there were stories we threw out it and he I, I don't know he did a fantastic job um again everyone should read it so talking about reading things no one else does tim you put together an annotated bibliography on competition and control over emerging tech which goes back to like the 60s um why and to what end <laughs> uh, absolutely. Um, so uh, a little background on this project. Basically, um, you know, the intuition of the project was, hey, we can look to history to give us some understanding of the kind of long legacy of um, policy discussions, debates, fights about, you know, essentially using these types of tools to, you know, prevent sort of access um, to rivals in getting access to a technology. And so um, we did a lot of sort of background research. Uh, a lot of this was guided by uh, Adam Klein, who is part of the research team. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, we sort of ended up with a huge body of resources. Um, and, you know, I think it, one of the things that we want to do with the project is not just present the case study, but also in some ways present this whole corpus of sources that we had developed. And I think the reason for doing that is really twofold. I think one of them is um, it seems like a real waste to just kind of put that in the trash once you're done with a paper. Um, and I think the second one is that, you know, I think part of the idea here is to make these sources that go back to, you know, the earlier part of the 20th century 
um, accessible to researchers, right? To make it low cost to basically just say, yeah, what were we talking about on these topics, you know, in the 1960s, right? Like, what was the discussion that we had around Japan and semiconductors? Um, just because I think like the ability to kind of easily reach back and touch these examples is critical uh, because I think in some ways a lot of the discussion around export controls, particularly around kind of cutting edge tech, um, is like deeply ahistorical in some ways. We sort of just imagine like, okay, we're now doing this for the first time. Um, and, you know, I think the, the bibliography is a kind of counterweight to that. It's to basically say, look, we'd be really not doing our homework if we didn't even kind of think about whether or not there's sort of parallels we should be learning lessons on uh, from, from, from history. So the, the, my other big takeaway in, 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 you know, clicking through some of those links from reports <laughs> from the 80s was um, how good they were and how much worse the discourse is today um, <laughs> on a lot of the writing. Um, I mean, this is a curated bibliography. We're, we're, only, we're only bringing the best stuff. You know, this is the greatest hits. Okay, but Tim, like, I read, I read literally everything in English about <laughs> U.S.-China technology. Like, there are not I, – I, I think I know what the ceiling is. And um, I feel like some of the, you know, 1980s, the, the Office of Tech Assessment con uh, stuff coming out of Congress, they're doing these 500-page reports, like incredibly deep explorations of these um, strategic markets and, you know, talking through the levers and the different players and who's up and who's down. And if the technology goes this way, it'll impact in this way and this, that, and the other thing. It's just like, it's, it, it, it was really cool to know that, like, Look, if they can do this in the 80s without the internet, um, it's a really embarrassing the level of um, conversation that you that you get today. Yeah, it's it's almost as if someone slashed budgets and resources for well-resourced research staffs. Uh, any other takeaways you had, Tim, from reading all this stuff? So I think probably the set of sources that I find most interesting, particularly when it comes to the recent set of moves that I advise people take a look at is the sources around the kind of discussion around Japan, um, you know, particularly because they concern semiconductors. Uh, and I think in some ways there's so many sort of interesting echoes in the past there that, you know, if, if, you're, if you're looking at the bibliography and you're like, I don't want to read all of this, uh, the Japan section I think is the most interesting one in my mind. And I would just add, I'm going to give a, a shout out to another book that actually does a, an amazing job at talking specifically about that Japan example um, in the 1980s. Uh, it's a book that came out, I think, this past summer by two professors. So Mario Daniels and John Krieger. Mario Daniels used to be visiting at Georgetown. He's now based in the Netherlands and John Krieger is at Georgia Tech. But the book is called um, Knowledge Regulation and National Security in Postwar America. And there is an entire chapter dedicated to discussing the kind of tech competition, um, semiconductor war kind of thing between the US and Japan. And I kid you not, as you read that chapter, there are certain places, actually many places, where you could just take out the word Japan, sub in China, and it would sound exactly like you had seen it in the news like yesterday. It's absurd. Uh, I love the I love the little piece in the beginning of that book where they're just like, no one studies export controls because it's hard and it's boring. And I'm just like, God bless you too. Yep. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about AI and high-end semiconductor manufacturing for a minute. To what extent um, can and can't you find relevant analogs in history for what the Commerce Department has been up to this week? The main thing is, okay, so we've talked a lot about the space example. Um, I think it offers a couple lessons. Uh, and I think one of the most important ones is 
you know, clarity around objectives, right? And, uh, you know, one of the objectives you could say in the AI space is, okay, we want to implement export controls. We want to kind of preserve American advantage and superiority in, in this particular technology. Um, and, you know, like others, I think we pointed out that, look, trying to regulate or do export controls around a lot of the inputs for AI is, is sort of silly, right? Like, it's like very difficult to control data. Uh, it's very difficult to control, like, a lot of the algorithms that you use in machine learning. Um, and so I think, you know, what we've landed on, which a lot of like, people have landed on in the space, is, okay, well, the main thing which seems big and immovable is semiconductors. Okay, so let's try to do export controls around that. Um, I think what's distinct about our paper, though, is that I think we bring into question whether or not blocking access to semiconductors is actually an effectual way of preventing a rival from advancing in AI technology. Um, and that might sound weird to a couple people's ears who are listening to this, uh, in part because I think there's been so much rhetoric around, okay, in order to do AI, you need big computers. So, you know, I think implicitly your reaction might be, well, if you don't have access to big computers, then, like, how can you do the AI thing? And I think what we point out is, you know, two major arguments. I think one of them is, you know, we are entering this phase right now where it's actually unclear whether or not the current model of doing AI, right, which is data-intensive, compute-intensive, all this kind of stuff, um, you know, whether or not that's hitting a ceiling over time, right? And that whether further advances in the realm of artificial intelligence are going to rely on a lot of subfields that don't really require you to have a huge amount of computing power. So, you know, one of the arguments in the space is, okay, you know, machines need to learn how to do causal reasoning, right? Which is like kind of a subfield of AI. That's stuff that by and large does not require, you know, incredibly intensive computing power. So I think the first argument is that the realm of AI is actually quite broader than what semiconductors can do. And I think the second one is that this is sort of incredibly vulnerable way of building an export control because how you do AI in some ways has a lot to do with how advanced the algorithms are that you use in, in the training process. And, you know, there's a lot of work, not surprisingly right now, on trying to reduce the amount of data and the amount of computing power you need in order to train good AI systems. And so kind of what we point out is like, look, you could implement these incredibly sophisticated, incredibly effective semiconductor export control regime only to discover that some grad student publishes a paper being like, we can train AI systems with much less compute. The whole ability to block AI progress falls apart then if you've hung your hat entirely on semiconductors. And so I think those are two arguments for why I think we should be wary that semiconductors are indeed a robust way of preventing progress in AI. Now, look, there might be other interests we're trying to pursue through these export controls, but as to the question of whether or not you can block progress in the technology, uh, I think that argument's a little bit tenuous. So Emily and Tim, what is the strategic menu that you could potentially order from when at an export controls restaurant? Like what, like what can you, as a nation, what can you use export controls to do? Oh, yeah, I can answer that. So if you're thinking about what the U.S. as a nation can do with export controls, there are probably a few different things that you could do. You could focus on, on end users, so specific entities that you're concerned about receiving a, a specific type of technology. And we saw some of those um, new end use controls come up in uh, the latest regulations. You can also control specific technology regardless of the end user. Um, and we see that also with the addition of new export control classification numbers um, or ECCNs for uh, the uh, specified high-end integrated circuits um, that were included in the latest controls. So again, just at the, at the highest level, you have controls on end users, uh, end uses. So if you're using a specific technology in a certain way, 
You can control the export of that technology if you have a knowledge that it's going to be used in a specific way, or you can control based on the technology itself. So in the context of these three buckets, there are a few different things that I think export controls can do. And I think Tim and I talked about this um, in terms of our, our, our lessons that we pulled from the space example. Um, one of them, and, and I think the one that's most uh, uh, pertinent to the conversations today, is this idea of imposing strategic delay on um, enemies, adversaries, competitors, whatever you want to call them. Um, and this, I would say, imposing delay rather than like completely killing or gutting a specific industry. Because to be honest, I think when you go about these tools unilaterally, you might have kind of a very like blunt force kind of big, you know, potentially something that looks like you're killing an industry effect um, in the short term. But going forward, and I would say probably, and it depends on how quick China can find workarounds or how um, China China finds ways to source from um, other countries because this was a unilateral policy, um, it will then uh, slowly kind of erode um, over the next decade or so. And I, it's almost like we can think about the ITAR-free satellites, but like uh, US-free chips or US-free supercomputers, something like that yeah. for, for kind of the, the parallel here. Yeah, I mean, I guess the the kind of the central question and the one I don't think anyone has a good answer to is to what extent is that actually the case? And, you know, you have all this investment on the other side on Chips Act and NSTC trying to move the goalposts, right? Um, make it make the make the gap further. So in 2025, America isn't at a 10 at a static 10, it's at a 12 or a 15. And, you know, maybe if China's today at a three, they can climb forward to a four or a five, but you're net expanding rather than contracting. Just one thing. So just quickly on that exact uh, kind of point that you were just making, Jordan, um, this idea. So a few months ago, there was this big kind of uproar in the China tech community about whether or not SMIC, so Semiconductor Manufacturing Industry Corporation, China's big chip company, whether or not they had actually achieved this really advanced seven nanometer capability that we previously had thought that they wouldn't be able to achieve because they lacked access to this very specialized photolithography equipment that comes from one supplier only uh, in the Netherlands ASML. Um, and for a while, it, everyone was kind of talking about this as a failure of export controls because, you know, that this technology was supposed to be controlled. You know, how did China get access or how did China, you know, manage to do this? But it turned out that China, what they did and what SMIC was actually able to do was reach seven nanometer capabilities using older, more mature technology. But the caveat there is that they, yes, they had reached seven nanometer capabilities, but it looks as if from the reporting that they are not able to actually produce seven nanometer chips at scale. So in that case, I would actually argue that the controls are relatively successful in that case. And this goes back, I mean, I, I, I talk about this in terms of, you know, what we can expect from export controls. And Tim, anything to add? You know, on some level, semiconductors are, uh, they're a big deal because they're in everything. Um, I think one thing that may be useful for listeners of the podcast to think a little bit about is that we can also ask the question, you know, does a country being able to indigenously produce seven nanometers versus X nanometers really going to give it a major leg up in, say, national competition, right? And I think this is sort of one of the interesting questions, particularly when it comes to sort of my realm of what I, I do a lot of work in, which is AI, right? Which is basically like, yeah, does it actually turn out that, like, you know, having that much of an advantage in chips 
really gives you access to a kind of AI which gives you some robust advantage in national competition, particularly in a world where, hey, a lot of models are going to be open source. You don't actually need big chips to, to run a lot of this stuff. Um, you know, and I do think that we can get tied up in, you know, kind of like the, the, the pissing match, I guess, if you will, of like this many nanometers versus that many nanometers. I think it's worth to kind of take a step back and just say, okay, but what will be the practical effect of having access to one kind of chip versus another one that's slightly more advanced? And look, this might make a difference if you're talking about, I don't know, fighter jets fighting one another. Yeah. But at least in the realm of kind of like a lot of AI use cases, it's actually unclear whether or not this really changes the picture from a competitiveness standpoint. Because so I've been uh, making China talk is really depressing because everything, every single show I do about modern China is just like a bummer. Um, so I tried <laughs> to think about like the happiest possible spinoff I could make that makes me most excited about where the world is going. And so in the coming weeks, you guys are going to start hearing episodes about AI and creativity. Um, I've just, you know, been following the kind of Dolly mid-journey stable diffusion arc and think it's an absolutely wondrous, magnificent thing. Um, but God damn it, we're going to tie it back to export controls. So, um, we have, uh, the, the story in brief is that over the past few years, um, there was this consensus that these giant models, which are going to be able to, you know, generate really cool AIs were going to probably be concentrated in a handful of places that had the best engineers and access to hundreds of millions of dollars of capital because you could then make the dopest models and run them at the largest scale, which would then make your the model you had more competitive than anyone else. So um, what has been fascinating to watch over the past... I don't know, six months, year or so, is that assumption really being thrown on its head where you've seen good enough versions um, created um, for way cheaper and open source such that um, this isn't necessarily that large language models and sort of like uh, diffusion models that create images and probably lots of other AI things may or may not end up being something that you can necessarily control um, in a way that, you know, in the early days, uh, days of relational databases, kind of Oracle had their, you know, grasp on to take a sort of okay example. So um, anyways, Tim, thoughts on how um what may be another revolution in ai uh potentially applies to the uh u.s export control strategy around this industry yeah absolutely i mean i think that um you know one important distinction which is frequently lost in a lot of discussions around machine learning is, is just simply the distinction between training and inference right where you're going to build a dolly type model okay now you're talking the world of like really expensive computation really advanced chips in order to like get it to work once you've built it though right like the hardware demands are are a lot lower um and you know ultimately you end up with a piece of software which can be open sourced can be distributed right and so the environment that we've tended to end up with is what you're describing in stable diffusion right where there's these you know breakthrough models but very quickly you see open source versions which are good enough. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's A, what's really exciting about AI, and B, I think in some ways like raises questions about the robustness of semiconductor-related export controls in preventing access to advanced capabilities. Because you can imagine a world where you spend all your time doing this, someone just open sources a model, right? Like, again, the whole thing has kind of fallen apart because, again, right, like, 
a lot of your advantage in using AI systems is not going to necessarily come from training. It's going to be like, how do you deploy these capabilities out in the field? And that has uh, frequently much less to do with like whether or not you have access to a huge cluster of compute. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think the stable diffusion uh, example is a really good one. Like, I think it demonstrates this sort of dream of like, we have the Manhattan Project and we like are putting the, the fences and walls around AI. Um, it's just really difficult to maintain. It's just really difficult to maintain. Yeah, and, and I think at the end of the day, sort of what is as if not more important than this is who can make the companies that end up becoming the trillion dollar firms that capitalize on the new sort of uh, uh, revolutions that we're going to end up seeing in the coming years on the application side. And I don't necessarily think that these sort of restrictions are going to matter all that much um, on that side, though. Yeah, totally. Like, I think, like, grungy, grungy first market may very well win against kind of, like, this exquisite AI sort of system, right? Like, um, and, and I don't know. I, like, it is notable to me, for example, that, like, let's just talk about content recommendation algorithms, right? Which is, which is a, you know, a, a species of AI. It's sort of interesting to me that, like, it wasn't Google that got to TikTok. It was, like, TikTok that got to TikTok. Yeah. Right. And like, it's clear that having access to the most brilliant minds in basic research were, was not necessarily the thing that allowed you to create even commercial dominance in the technology. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Tim, let's talk about the Trade Journal Collective for a minute. <laughs> um, you know, with all these great books on export controls and stable diffusion sitting on my laptop, I find myself on Sunday mornings reading about church management and trucking fleets and bowling alleys. Um, what, what, what is this you're doing and why is it so fascinating? <laughs> uh, so for listeners, Jordan's referring to a, a side project that I've run for well, almost like five years now. It's actually been kind of a long run. Um, it's a really simple idea. Basically, a number of years ago, uh, I called a place, uh, a magazine, uh, that operates out of Italy by the name of Pasta Professional. And this is the trade journal for people who are in the pasta industry. Um, and I was like, I am just a regular citizen. Would you sell me a copy of these trade journals? And they were like, no. Like, wh why are you even calling us? Like, are you calling us from, like, California? What are you doing? And, and I, was like, I was like, I'll show you guys. And so Trade Journal Cooperative was basically like, could I get together enough of my nerdy friends to pool together our money to buy back issues of niche trade journals? And it's basically become a subscription service. You pay me $15 a quarter. Once a quarter, I send you a randomly selected niche trade journal. Um, and it's been great. I basically called back the magazine and was like, yo, it's not just me now. I want to buy hundreds of these trade journals. Which, how big uh, which is it? Which is basically unlocked... 
Uh, sorry? How many subscribers do you have at this point? Hundreds. There's hundreds of us. <laughs> so, uh, and it has given us uh, an ability to access trade journals that we wouldn't otherwise be able to access. And so um, it sounds like, Jordan, you're a little bit like me. You know, it's just been a really fascinating exercise in understanding what's going on in the pasta industry or the church management industry or the haunted house industry. Um, and uh, yeah, it's been a real joy to go to run all these years. Yeah. So the thing I think that gets me is it just, it makes you think about the world differently when you walk around it. Um, you know, mm -hmm. when, when, when I am, you know, going to synagogue, I do not think of it as mm -hmm. a business. When I'm going to the <laughs> right. corner store, it's not like, it's just my brain, my like sort of like, you know, very ill-informed management consultant brain is not <laughs> turned on in these contexts. And now that like through these magazines, you just get a little exposure to kind of what these folks are worried about, what they're excited about. Mm -hmm. Like I love the advertisements too in them. Yeah, um, the advertisements are definitely the best part of the um, experience. And, uh, and, it, yeah. and it just it's just like, wow, the economy is like incredible. And there's so much stuff in it, which is not <laughs> – you know, stable diffusion and, and, you know, five nanometer fabs. There's just like people who run businesses that like interact with other human beings. And it's like, I don't know. It's, totally. it's very, it's, I don't know. It's nice. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's, that's actually, it's, it's great in two respects. I think one of them is like, I love the fact that every publication has done a, are the millennials killing our industry <laughs> article? Like this is just a theme across the board. All of them are basically like millennials. Um, the pasta professional one was like millennials. They don't, they don't eat pasta anymore. What do we do about this? Um, and then, yeah. And then I also like the idea that sometimes their interests or their concerns are just so, so niche, but then you sort of realize that like looking around the world, like people are just stressed out trying to think about how to just get their industry to work no matter what you look at. And like, yeah. I feel like that's an endlessly like fascinating. Well, yeah, it was so sad reading the, uh, like the stadium management one, like mm -hmm. two months into the pandemic, they're just like, Hang in there, guys. Like, it's going to be okay. Because, yeah, it, it, it's this interesting dynamic of, like, like, like intra-competition as well as, like, competition of your industry versus, like, how other people – how people could spend their time. It's like, yeah, how can I beat the church around the corner but also, like, American religiosity fading? Like, what yeah. can we do about that? Totally. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's been good. I, I, my, my next dream, actually – uh, is to uh, see if I can get, like, passes to their trade shows. Um, like, a little while back, I called the Moscone Center, which is the uh, the conference center or convention center in San Francisco, and I was like, can I just buy, like, a season pass from you guys? Jesus like, Christ. And they were like, no, I, why would you do that? But I'm kind of like, okay, now I just got to get together. I'm going to do the same game again. It's just like, how many people do I need to get together for you guys to sell me a season pass? Um, so I don't know the, 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 the train keeps running. So you should subscribe at trade journal cooperative.com. Tim, uh, Tim, can we get uh, $5 off with the code China talk for your first month? <laughs> we should, I actually got to build that into the system. It's like this very crappy stripe thing that I wrote like years and years ago. I don't even know if we can support discount codes, but, uh, yeah, just write to me at, at help at trade journal cooperative. I'm sure we could set some of your listeners up. Okay. <laughs> Tim, Emily, you got a song to take us out on? Is it bad that my first instinct is always it's the end of the world? The REM song. <laughs> this is why I can't keep doing China Talk anymore because it's the only song people have because everything's too sad. How about a pasta song? I may well do a pasta song.
<laughs> thanks so much for being part of China Talk. Yeah, thanks. This has been awesome. Jordan, thanks. <laughs> it's been great. Noodles and butter, noodles and butter. You are my favorite treat. Noodles and butter, there is no other. Nothing else that I want to eat. I don't like chocolate cake like others do, or lemon drops, or peppermint chew, or little cakes, or sugar lumps. No, no, no. No candy bars or whipping cream, no lollipops or tangerines, no root beer floats or bubble gum. No, 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 no. I just want noodles and butter, noodles and butter. You are my favorite treat. Noodles and butter, there is no other. Nothing else that I want to eat. I don't like bubblegum or licorice whips or anything dipped in a whipped cream dip. None of that seems good to me. No, 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 no. No coconut pie or blueberry tart or anything from that pastry cart. The only thing I really want is noodly and buttery as well. You can keep your sugar sweets. Make yourself a tower of trashy treats. Noodles and butter, you're the only one. You're the only one, the only one I need. I don't like chocolate cake like others do, or lemon drops, or peppermint chew, or little cakes, or sugar lumps. No, no, no. No candy bars or whipping cream, no lollipops or tangerines, no root beer floats or bubble gum. Just want noodles and butter, noodles and butter. You are my favorite treat. Noodles and butter, there is no other. Nothing else that I want to eat.